I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. In this episode, I'd like to look at a psalm, Psalm 130. Many times when we think of the psalms, we immediately think of praise, and for good reason. A lot of the psalms have as their dominant focus praise, to the degree that the Hebrew title for the Psalter was Praises. However, this psalm is another kind of psalm that is not necessarily praise, although as we'll see, it certainly does get to praise. Psalm 130 is one of seven psalms that the church over the centuries have labeled as the penitential psalms. The psalm has four stanzas, each progressively expressing true repentance to the Lord rather than praise, which is what we normally associate with the psalms. In the first stanza, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist begins with a cry of desperation to the Lord. He is expressing his deep need for God. He finds himself in a desperate situation, and so he cries aloud to the only one who can help him. He begs God for help. He begs God for mercy. The first two verses, the first stanza of this psalm read, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So what is the terrible situation in which the psalmist finds himself? This first stanza expresses a desperate need, but then the second stanza, beginning in verse 3, tells us what this terrible situation is. Verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. The situation out of which the psalmist is crying to the Lord for mercy is that he is a sinner fully deserving of the judgment of God. He knows that if the Lord would take note of his sinful condition, he would not be able to stand under the just wrath of a holy God. And yet the psalmist doesn't stop there. In the second half of this stanza in verse 4, the psalmist proclaims that despite this situation, despite his sinfulness, despite the fact that he would not be able to stand under the just judgment of God, in God there is forgiveness. God does show mercy to those who approach him in this way with hearts of repentance and faith. And so then in the third stanza, verses 5 through 6, the psalmist rests in the realization that the Lord forgives, and he simply trusts in the Lord. He places his hope in God. He, he places his steadfast confidence in God's ability and willingness to forgive sin. The third stanza, beginning in verse 5, says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. You see, this penitential psalm, this psalm of desperation, is not the cry of someone who is without hope. This is not the cry of a helpless individual pleading for mercy from a distant, unconcerned despot of a deity. No, this is a cry for mercy from someone who has already been promised mercy. This is a cry for help from someone who knows that, the, that with the Lord there is steadfast love. That This is a gospel song. When the great reformer Martin Luther was asked what his favorite psalms were, his answer was that his favorite psalms were the Pauline psalms. 
And when he was asked, well, what psalms are those? He answered Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Psalm 143, and Psalm 130. Four penitential psalms. Luther said that he believed that these four penitential psalms, Psalm 130 among them, contain truths that best reflect the gospel as Paul articulated it in his New Testament epistles. And then Luther, among the other hymns that he wrote, one of the things that he did was to paraphrase Psalm 130. Aus tiefer not, out of the depths, was Martin Luther's German version of Psalm 130. And it's been translated into English today. I highly recommend this wonderful hymn. The first stanza of Luther's hymn, translated by Catherine Winkworth into English, reads, Out of the depths I cry to thee, Lord, hear me, I implore thee. Bend down thy gracious ear to me, my prayer let come before thee. If thou rememberest every sin, if not but just reward we win, could we abide thy presence? A wonderful modern English expression of this ancient psalm of confession. I highly recommend Luther's hymn, translated in English by Catherine Winkworth, still Luther's tune, and you can find it on classichymns.org. Out of the depths I cry to thee. So Psalm 130 clearly expresses the reality of our sin and God's judgment of sin and forgiveness that is possible for all who repent and believe, forgiveness that is based on the sacrificial atonement of the Son of God. As I mentioned, this really is a gospel song. But it's important to recognize that that this is a song. This is a poem meant to be sung. And because of that, we can't just look at the content of this psalm, although that's valuable to do. In other words, we can't just treat this psalm like we would a Pauline epistle. This is a poem. This is a work of art. And so we need to take a step further and look at what this psalm, this poem, is doing artistically. You see, a song like Psalm 130 is not simply an expression of information. The purpose of this song is not simply to tell us that we are sinners and that we deserve God's judgment, but we can find forgiveness in God if we simply repent and hope in him. The psalm does say that, but as a song, as a work of art, this psalm does more than simply teach us doctrine about sin and forgiveness. A song allows the author to express aspects of the experience of biblical confession that are deeper than just didactic words. A song allows the reader to experience for himself the realities of the image that the poet paints in a way that would not be possible if the poet had simply described the experience in a detached fashion. Psalm 130 is an artistic composition. It is a song that allows us to enter experientially what the author experienced as he repented of his sin and trusted in God. And because it's God's word, it does so in a way that what we experience in the art is a God-centered interpretation of that experience. It is exactly what God wants us to experience when we draw near to him in confession. That's the power of this song of repentance. Martin Luther's comments about this very psalm illustrates the point. He said of the opening lines of Psalm 130, These are noble, passionate, and very profound words of a truly penitent heart that is most deeply moved in its distress. In fact, 
Luther says, this cannot be understood except by those who have felt and experienced it. We are all in deep and great misery, but we do not all feel our condition. Luther's right. We, we don't often recognize our need for confession of sin like we should. And in fact, someone who hasn't recognized that need really can't even understand what it's like. And that's where songs of confession are so important. A good song of confession helps us to know experientially what true repentance should be like, not only through what the song says, but also through what the song does artistically. And so what does Psalm 130 do artistically? First, songs often make use of metaphors to create an image. A metaphor is a representative symbol. It's a picture that's not literally true, but it's a picture that communicates a truth in a deeper way than it would otherwise. Of course, the most obvious metaphor in this psalm is found in the opening line, out of the depths This phrase paints a picture. It captures our imagination and draws us into the world that the poet is painting. The the depths here signifies something like a deep pit or deep waters. The author is not literally in a pit or literally drowning in a deep body of water. No, he's using an artistic metaphor that creates an image of how we should feel about our sin. We should feel as if we are drowning in the depths of our depravity. And when when we recognize this, God wants us to cry out to him in desperation. Out of the depths of my sin, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So the author is creating a poetic experience of desperation that he wants us to enter as we consider our sin. He's not just telling us that we should feel desperate about our sin. He is showing us artistically through the use of this metaphor. That's what a good song does. The psalmist expresses similar themes in the third stanza in verses 5 and 6. This third stanza, like the first, is communicating a kind of desperation because of sin. But this time, it is a hope-filled desperation because we trust in the promises of God. And the poet helps us to feel this desperation, this time through a lot of repetition. That's another poetic device that songwriters often use to express something that cannot be expressed with just didactic statements alone. Notice how many times in this short space that the poet uses the concept of waiting or hoping. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. And then he adds two more lines that are completely repetitive. And actually in the Hebrew they read, more than watchman for the morning, watchman for the morning. It's like when your little two-year-old desperately wants to get your attention. Mommy, 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 mom, mom. That's the kind of longing that the psalmist is trying to create poetically here. The songwriter is saying, the reality of your sin should cause you to desperately cry out to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. This is true biblical repentance. Repentance is not simply recognizing your sinfulness. Anyone can do that. Repentance is being horrified by our sin, feeling the heavy weight of our sin, and desperately crying out to God for mercy. Now, the author could have just said that. 
He could have just said, my sin is bad, I need forgiveness, God please forgive me. But songs do more than just say something to us. Songs do something to us. The psalm doesn't just tell us what true repentance is like. The psalm leads us to feel what true repentance should feel like. And it does that through metaphors and through the repetition of words and phrases and through through leaving out phrases that, that we fill in with our minds ourselves. And the psalmist further paints this picture with the metaphor that he uses in the, in the last two lines of this stanza. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. The watchman here pictures guards who have been standing at their post all night. They're longing for the morning. But this is also a confident waiting. The watchman knows the morning is coming. There's no question about that. And in the same way, we have confidence that God will forgive those who repent of their sins. So the purpose of the first and third stanzas of this song is to communicate to us the kind of desperation for the Lord that should accompany true repentance, true confession of sin. We should not feel comfortable in our sin. We should feel desperate. We should cry out to the Lord for forgiveness, and then we should wait longingly for him. But the the psalm doesn't end there. The second and fourth stanzas communicate to us what our final response should be. Before we get to that, I want to let you know about a new book that has just been published uh, by Whitfinstock that, uh, that I wrote last year. And it's a book entitled, Draw Near, The Heart of Communion with God. What comes into your mind when you hear the phrase communion with God? Sitting cross-legged, eyes closed, arms outstretched and humming, or losing yourself in emotional ecstasy, or being ushered into another dimension? What, What really is communion with God? Emptying your mind and hearing audible voices from God? Well, in this book, through a series of meditations on several biblical passages, my goal is to show that communion with God is not something mystical or mysterious. No, biblically speaking, communion with God is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is clearly communicated throughout the pages of scripture. And communion with God is absolutely vital for fruitful Christian life that brings God ultimate glory. This book is short. It's an easy read. It's a devotional read. I hope that you'll check this book out on Whippenstock's website. That's usually the cheapest place to get it or Amazon or any other uh, book website. Draw near the heart of communion with God. I hope you'll check out the book and recommend it to uh, friends and, and to others in your church. So the first and third stanzas of Psalm 130 express the desperation that we should have because of our sin. But in the middle of these two stanzas of desperation and waiting, the second stanza of this song, verses 3 and 4, reveals both the reason the psalmist's sin leaves him in a condition of desperation and the solution to his situation. And here again, the psalmist doesn't just tell us. He shows us artistically through a metaphor. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist is creating a picture of God as a judge who is sitting on his bench, keeping record of each and every sin that we commit, and justice requires that that punishment be served for each offense. If God were to operate in that way, no one would be able to stand. 
And again, the psalmist is not just telling us this. He's not just telling us that we deserve punishment from God for our sin. He's showing us this artistically because he wants us to feel the weight of our sin. The psalmist knows that true confession is not only an intellectual assent to the reality of our sinfulness. There are plenty of people who intellectually recognize that they are sinners, but this intellectual recognition alone is not true repentance. True repentance necessarily involves a change of heart. As Luther said, true repentance requires that we feel the misery of our sin and that we come to abhor our sin. This is the heart reaction that the psalmist wants us to have, and that's what makes this song so powerful. Yet for a child of God, there is a solution to our desperate condition. But with you, there is forgiveness. Here is the gospel. Here is grace. But this is not cheap grace. This is a grace that should cause us to rightly fear God, as the psalmist says. That's why the songwriter doesn't just focus on God's love or or God's goodness or God's kindness. He first brings us down. He shows us the desperation of our condition. And then he creates a stark contrast to our sin with God's great forgiveness. The psalmist clearly tells us his goal at the end of the verse, that you may be feared. The psalmist knows that God's people are often tempted to take God's grace for granted. We are often tempted to see God's grace as cheap and to fail to recognize what it cost for God to forgive his people. We often grow comfortable in our sin because we think that since we are God's people and he has made unconditional promises to us, then we no longer need to confess our sin. We no longer need to repent. We no longer need to fear God. But the psalmist wants us to fear God because we are sinners and because in God there is forgiveness. This is why the psalmist spends so much time in this song creating an artistic picture of our desperate condition in sin and the just punishment that we deserve because it is only when we truly feel the weight of our condition without God that true repentance can occur. It's only when we turn away from our sin in disgust and cry out to God that we truly repent. And it's only when we truly repent in this way that we can have full confidence and hope in the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. And so the psalmist expresses a progression from repentant desperation to this hope and confidence in God's mercy. And he does so beautifully in the specific words that he chooses in this song. Again, a good good songwriter doesn't just choose the first words that come to his mind. A good songwriter carefully chooses his words in order to communicate very specific ideas. And, And this song, Psalm 130, is no different. In this song, the author communicates something simply with the names for God that he chooses as he progresses through each of the stanzas. This is beautiful. Notice the use of the word Lord in verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord... O Lord, hear my voice. Now, in our English translation, we we see two uses of the word Lord, but in Hebrew, they are actually two different terms. The first is Yahweh. You can tell that by the use of all caps in that instance of Lord. And of course, this is the unique covenant name for God. This is the name for God that signifies that the psalmist knows God's promises made to him. 
He knows that he is one of God's chosen people. He knows that God's promises and his chesed, his steadfast, loyal, covenantal love will endure forever. He knows that. But the second title for God that he uses is not Yahweh, but Adonai. This is a broader title for God that emphasizes not his covenant faithfulness and love for his people, but his sovereignty and his rule over all things. It's it's a title that expresses a deep respect and reverence, but in a way, it's a more distant title for God. And the author repeats this back and forth reference to God as Yahweh and God as Adonai. And he does that in the second and third stanzas as well. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Adonai, who could stand? Verse 5, I wait for Yahweh. And verse 6, my soul waits for Adonai. It's as if in these three stanzas of repentance, the songwriter is saying, I know I am one of God's chosen people. I know that God has made promises to me. I know that God's steadfast love toward me will endure forever. But I also know that God is is the sovereign ruler over all things, and he is just, and he is holy, he cannot tolerate sin, and if he judges me for my sin, I will not stand. And so in these three stanzas, he goes back and forth, Yahweh, Adonai, Yahweh, Adonai, Yahweh, Adonai. But then, look at the fourth stanza beginning in verse 7. O Israel, hope in Yahweh, for with Yahweh... There is hesed. There is steadfast love. The songwriter has carefully and clearly created an artistic progression of thought here through careful word choice that his original audience would have felt. When we sin, we should not take God's grace for granted. We should not feel comfortable. We should feel desperation. We should recognize that the holy, sovereign, just Adonai will judge sin. But a child of God who is repentant will not stay in that condition of desperation. A child of God knows that in Yahweh, there is forgiveness. In Yahweh, there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And so we can have full and complete confidence. God will keep his covenant with us. God will redeem his people through the use of metaphors and repetition and careful word choice and names for God. The songwriter of Psalm 130 moves us artistically from a feeling of repentant desperation to a feeling of complete hope and confidence in the forgiving, steadfast love of God. And this song does not just tell us this, this song shows us this artistically, as all good hymns should. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.